Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping today on Thursday, November 14th at about 12.30 p.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Alice Olstein of Politico. Hello. Good afternoon today. (laughs) (laughs) And Rebecca Adams of CQ Roll Call. Thanks for having me. Later in the episode, I'll talk to Dan Weissman about the new season of his podcast, An Arm and a Leg. KHN is a co-producer of the podcast about the high cost of health care. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. So there is still no word on that Texas lawsuit we've all been waiting for, but there is plenty of other health news this week. Uh, The federal fiscal year actually began on October 1st, and Congress has completed work on exactly zero of its annual spending bills. There is what's known as a continuing resolution that's keeping the government doors open and the lights on that expires November 22nd, which is coming pretty fast. That was supposed to give lawmakers time to finish up the spending bills that time between October 1st and November 22nd. But surprise, that did not happen. Now Congress is apparently getting ready to pass another temporary bill, this time until December 20th. Don't make those Christmas plans. Now, this is a year in which there has already been a budget deal. We talked about it when it happened last summer. So why haven't they gotten any of the spending bills done yet? We thought the hard part was over, turns out. <laughs> not so much. Not so much. Um, I, I mean, there's there's lots of disagreements. Um, and then, you know, the Senate has just barely taken up any of the spending bills the house has passed most most of the ones they need but even the ones the house and senate have passed they haven't conferenced on them to resolve so zero out of 12 have gotten fully out the door at this point um and so they're they're just agreeing about just the levels each agency committee gets to set levels of funding um there's disagreements about individual policies border wall is a huge one obviously and that's why you haven't seen debate yet on the homeland security bill um disagreements about family planning funding uh, which we'll get is to that in a minute why you haven't seen <laughs> um the senate take up the hhs funding bill so yes it's a a lot of stalemates. Yeah, I was going to say the Senate. So the Senate did a package of four, I think, right. and they were they had another package behind it that included the HHS bill, and then it didn't happen. Yes, Democrats objected to that because they they want to figure out how much we're spending for each bill. They have not even figured that part out. Um, the Senate bill right now has an eight percent increase for the Homeland Security bill, which includes that border wall that Alice was talking about. But it only has a 1% increase for the Labor, Health, and Human Services and Education Bill, which Democrats care a lot about. And so... Yeah, it it seems so long ago, but we should remind people, this is the first year the Democrats have had a major say in the levels of the spending bills because they're in charge of the House. Yes, that's right. So it's the first full set of spending bills that, that we've had in this sort of divided Democratic House and Republican Senate. Right. So once we figure out the money, then that will clear the way to get a lot of this done. I mean, they they are fighting over this border wall, which, uh, if you remember, caused a little bit of trouble at the beginning of this year when we had a 35-day historic shutdown over the border wall. 
Um, even though at that point for last year's fiscal year, we had done the labor HHS education bill. But now we're we're continuing to see them fight over the levels of funding. Um, you mentioned the budget deal this summer. Well, the House had already moved forward on their bills when that budget deal came together. So the House bills are way above what they agreed to, and the Senate bills are not, and they have to figure out how to conference those and, and negotiate over those. Um, and then um, they have to, as Alice mentioned, they have to deal with some women's health amendments and other things. But those are not as big a deal as just figuring out the money. So let's talk about some of those those women's health issues. Well, part of the deal that they came to this summer is that there would not be a lot of, quote unquote, policy riders on these spending bills. But the Democrats really are looking to add language that would block the Trump administration's changes to the federal family planning program, Title X. These are the rules that are currently keeping Planned Parenthood out of the program because the doctors there say that failing to make abortion referrals to women with unintended pregnancies is medically unethical and they won't do that. feels like this has the potential for something of a standoff. Obviously, the border wall is going to be, you know, what's going to hold these up the most. But I mean, how firm are the Democrats on actually pushing this? Because the Republicans are obviously not going to want to do it in the Senate. Yeah. I mean, they're firm enough that Republicans canceled the markup that was going to happen in committee because this fight would have come up and it could have put members in a challenging position. Um, also because they didn't have the votes, right? Didn't uh, There's a couple of, of pro-family planning Republicans. That, that was that was the fear on the majority side for sure. And so they decided to bypass the committee to go straight to the floor. But we haven't seen it come up on the floor either. And so I think that the fight over Title X has been sort of simmering, brewing under the radar and hasn't come to a head yet because we haven't even reached the point where we're even talking about the bill itself because of the unresolved arguments about basic funding levels and other things. So in other words, stay tuned on the spending bills. There's way more to go. There is. um, The White House, by the way, uh, threatened to veto the House bill because Mm -hmm. it had that language that would bar this Trump administration rule from going forward. And although the Democrats are pushing really hard, I don't see them winning in the long run on this. Trump's not going to sign something that that (laughs) overturns And and even if they got a couple Republican senators, which even that is a question, but that's not enough. (laughs) They're not going to override a veto. Exactly. Um, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski mm -hmm. probably would vote for it, but you're right. But who else? Yeah. And so I, I think if we see a vote on this, Um, It might more be something that Democrats can use to hit vulnerable Republicans who are up for re-election in ads, for instance, you know, so-and-so voted to, you know, take away your access to birth control or however they frame it. But Mm -hmm. that's what I anticipate happening. Mm -hmm. And Susan Collins is running. (laughs) (laughs) Susan Collins is running. All right. Well, something else that we haven't talked about for a while but is going on, and that is vaping. Uh, A House committee this week approved, actually subcommittee, right, Mm -hmm. approved a bill that would raise the age for tobacco products to 21 would ban most vaping and tobacco flavors. That's a big deal because it's the flavors that attract the the underage users. Um, We've been expecting a vaping regulation from the Trump administration, but we've also seen indications that the administration might back off from some of the president's earlier vows uh, under pressure from Republican voters who vape, or is it vapors who vote? Uh, Where are we with the the vaping, Alice? You were were at the markup yesterday. Yeah, I mean, the... the Bill, the subcommittee 
approved and advanced is pretty comprehensive, pretty strong. It would do all of the things you mentioned. It would also raise the fees on tobacco products and use that money for enforcement and education and other things. And so uh, it, it was interesting. I think something we will maybe see coming up is it seems like a lot of concern about this new tobacco regulation is going to more break on regional lines rather than party lines. There were some interesting moments in the hearing where uh, a Florida Democrat wanted to get a carve out for cigars for, you know, her industry in her state, some North Carolina Democrats. In, in the Tampa area, perhaps? I, I forget exactly where, <laughs> but obviously it's there's, there's a big very cigar, important yes. to the state. And some North Carolina Democrats, big tobacco state, obviously. And so I think that but we'll see if that becomes a hindrance moving forward to actually passing something. But I think on all sides, you are hearing a lack of faith in the administration coming out with as strong a rule for the FDA as originally indicated. And so the, the need for Congress to really act on I mean, this. The president sat in the Oval Office and basically said, we're going to do this. And, we're going to ban all the flavors. Yeah. And and now apparently they're, they've been meeting with the vaping industry and there's now concern about maybe a carve out for some of the small shops. Maybe is, a carve out for menthol right. as well. Yeah. I mean, the FDA announced in September they were going to do this. We saw that the Office of Management and Budget Mm -hmm. came forward and said they had cleared the rule. And usually when it's done with interagency review, it's done, but it's not done this time. And they've been meeting behind the scenes. Um, They have talked about trying to carve out something for the adult-only vape shops, and they have talked about trying to allow menthol to go forward. And then people say, well, do you think that Juul or others would just change their mint to be menthol? And we have more problems, you know, the the problem continues. So I think it's really interesting. Who knows what's going to happen with this FDA policy? Um, HHS Secretary Alex Azar also said that there are some federalism issues that maybe a national standard isn't the best way to go after all. Back to just what Alice was saying mm-hmm. about how this always ends up breaking down regionally <laughs> rather than sort of, you know, straight party lines. Right. And you're seeing in the meantime sort of states are moving forward on their own policies. So it's it's very interesting. There, there was another interesting moment in the markup where several Republicans want argued for a carve out for members of the military saying, you know, if, huh. if these under 21 service members, if they're old enough to go die for their country, they're old enough to buy a cigarette and smoke. And Representative Eshoo, the subcommittee chair, countered by citing all of this uh, data from the military itself, the Pentagon itself, acknowledging how big uh, a problem tobacco is and how they would not want their members to be smoking. It caused all kinds of, you know, it costs a lot of money to deal with the health problems. They're trying to eradicate it anyways. And so that that was another interesting moment. And then the other thing that jumped out besides the military angle was um, there were some concerns raised um, because menthol in particular is really popular in communities of color and has been heavily marketed to communities of color. There were concerns raised that some kind of ban would increase law enforcement presence in those communities. But then others argued, no, 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 the, the, the crackdown would happen on the industry side, not on the individual consumer side, but just some things to think about. And Greg Walton was kind of interesting, too, when he was talking about the black market that could be created. He's the top Republican mm-hmm. on the full committee. And that's been a concern with, I mean, 
mean, I just yeah. these are all of the arguments that have gone on about tobacco regulation right. since the 1980s. I mm-hmm. remember when it took Congress right. two years to ban smoking on airplanes. I mean, that was a wow. huge deal. <laughs> and of course, you know, with the military, the, now the mili- we can't even yeah. imagine being trapped in the sky with <laughs> a bunch of cigarettes. But the, but the military, you know, has this long history with tobacco because they used to give uh, right. cigarettes for free to that's members right. of the military. Yeah. That's a, that's how the the tobacco industry got you know generations hooked on nicotine was by giving them free when they were in the military. Mm-hmm. So. It is kind of interesting, though, that it does seem like Congress is going to make the first big changes since they gave the FDA the authority to regulate tobacco Just 10, 10 years, years ago. ago. <laughs> doesn't seem that long ago, but yeah. So. All right. Well, I want to move on. Um, there was a story that got broken this week by the Wall Street Journal. It seems that Google has partnered with Ascension Health, which is a giant Catholic health system, in something called Project Nightingale. Under the project, Google is getting access to and analyzing millions of health records, including patient names and other identifying information, in order to recommend medical care services. Now, under the terms of HIPAA, the Federal Health privacy law. This seems to be perfectly legal if Google is acting as a business partner to, quote, help the covered entity carry out its healthcare functions. But I guess a big question is, does anyone really think Google won't use this information for other purposes, too? Uh, and apparently the HHS Office of Civil Rights, whose job it is to police HIPAA, thinks so as well. They're apparently looking into this. And we're hearing some concern from uh, from lawmakers, particularly from some senators. You know, the the interesting thing about this is that it obviously could be helpful. This is what artificial intelligence is supposed to do. Take all this, you know, little bits of information and synthesize it and say, oh, maybe you're missing this or maybe this patient would do better with that. But I guess it's now we're we're trading that off against how much do we actually trust these big corporations who we already know have a ton of our information? Do we want them to do this too? It also seems like while it's not apparent that any laws have been broken here. You know, is this an instance where our laws have not kept up with how fast technology is evolving and consumers who say, wait a minute, I didn't agree for Google to have all of my personal health records and identifying information, even though they are legally, you know, allowed to obtain it. I think that, you know, we might see some pushback. I don't know if you know, updates to HIPAA are in order, probably. I get annoyed when CVS <laughs> keeps texting me to come and, you know, to refill my prescriptions. Me I'm too. Like, They're very high. aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> they are. But it is. You know, on the one hand, tech is supposed to make our lives better and easier. And on the other hand, I mean, particularly with Google, we've all seen, you know, you talk about something and then you suddenly get an ad for it. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, misleading advertisements in the health space is like already such a huge problem. Could this make it worse? We've also seen some really interesting reporting recently. People talk about algorithms like they're, you know, unassailable, handed down from above, but algorithms are created by people. And what we've seen um, some really interesting reporting in the health space recently about algorithms um, being racist, honestly. I mean, recommending, uh, there was a really good article, I forget exactly where, but it was saying that um, these algorithms that were supposed to help providers know who would benefit from like extra services and care were recommending white patients over patients of color. And so um, is entrusting more decision making to AI even a good idea? <laughs> Yeah, I know. Which is scarier, the idea of self-driving cars or the idea of, you know, Google... <laughs> Self-driving. Google. 
Dr. Google Dr. recommending <laughs> your medical care. Dr. Google, why not? Yeah. <laughs> They're, then they'll drive you. Google The self-driving Google car will drive you to your appointment and then recommend your medical care. <laughs> anyway, I think that I think this this particular one seems to have struck a nerve probably because it's Google. I mean, there are a lot of these mm-hmm. types of things yeah. going on, but I'm I'm sort of amused by the immediate freak out. So, all right. Next topic. The Trump administration gets serious about drug prices, sort of. Uh, just after we taped last week, the administration announced it is suing drug maker Gilead over patent infringement for PrEP, which is the drug regimen that can prevent HIV infection. The lawsuit claims that Gilead is reaping billions in profits from drugs that were actually developed using taxpayer funds and that the patent is still held by the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. This is kind of a big deal, Yes. I think it's very interesting. Um, It's worth remembering that the CDC director is an HIV AIDS expert, and they are trying to end HIV transmission by 2030. So, um, Mostly using PrEP. Right. Right. Yes, which is pretty effective. And, uh, you know, they're going up against Gilead, which brought us the very expensive hepatitis C drugs a few years ago, is very well known for these pricey um, treatments. And so it'll be really interesting to see. I mean, you wouldn't necessarily expect the government under a Republican administration to take this kind of action. But I think that they've had these talks going on for a long time and they weren't getting anywhere. And so they basically decided, hey, we're going to show them we're serious. It could reverberate beyond this this specific drug. I mean, federally funded research has been the bedrock of so many medicines being created that are now being sold for profit by private corporations. That was my next question. I mean, do we feel like that? I mean, this is sort of an odd case because the government actually holds the patent. Right. In Mm -hmm. most of these cases, the the basic research is done at the NIH or, Mm -hmm. you know, some some taxpayer affiliated institution. And then the drug company takes it and develops it into a drug. Um, But in this case, there there's an actual government patent. And as Rebecca said, they've been trying to sort of reach a deal and they haven't. But I wonder if they're also trying to send a message about all of these other drug price things. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, Mm -hmm. hey, if we think you're making too much money, we're going to we're going to I mean, they can do this. The government has the ability to to step in. These these laws exist. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so much of the administration's efforts on drug prices have not been successful recently. So or have not gone anywhere. And so this um, might be an effort to turn that around. (laughs) It is true. I mean, they have been blocked in the courts and they have given up just through pressure on so many other parts of their drug price agenda that it is kind of interesting. Um, They are still saying that they want to do the international price index. And Secretary Azar this week said that he had talked to President Trump and President Trump said that wasn't aggressive enough, that they actually want to be more aggressive than what they had proposed before for those Part B drugs that are in outpatient care, and they had talked about doing that at 126% of the average rate of international countries. Um, and, and Trump said, I want the best deal possible for Americans. So I don't necessarily think that is actually ever going to become policy, but it is interesting that they're talking about it, mm-hmm. and President Trump seems very concerned about it. And it is November, and Congress still hasn't done anything on drug prices, right, although right. There, we're, there's still some talk of that. We're mm-hmm. waiting, I guess. I guess if Congress has to be around until December 20th now, because <laughs> of the spending bills, maybe they'll have time to do some other things. Well, the House will vote on their bill, and then it will not go anywhere in the, <laughs> in the Senate. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Probably. All right. So there is uh, a lot of other court news this week, mostly with the Trump administration on the 
side being sued as opposed to the side that's suing. Uh, First, a federal district court judge in New York and then a second judge in Spokane, Washington, uh, blocked a Trump administration regulation that would give health care providers the ability to refuse to provide basically any service that conflicts with their conscience. This is a rule that's similar to one that was issued by the George W. Bush administration that was undone when President Obama came into office. Uh, But the judge in New York was pretty scathing in his ruling, pointed out that the rule violated both the Constitution and the Administrative Procedures Act, which is how you actually put out regulations under federal law. Um, The judge in Washington state said the problems with the rules are, quote, numerous, fundamental, and far-reaching. Just a reminder, this rule could have made it harder for outpatients to get a lot more than just abortions, right? Right. I mean, there were concerns that it could affect uh, trans patients who were seeking services. Um, It could affect assisted suicide, Mm -hmm. birth control. All sorts of different things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there there'd been I, there was uh, back back the last time we were debating this, which was also ten years ago. I guess eleven years ago, there was a uh, a doctor who would not give birth control to unmarried patients. So there there's a lot of um, this is this has been an an issue that's been kicked around. And and you know it is it's it's important to remember there are conscience laws in federal law now. There are conscience mm-hmm. restrictions that that actually there's no one is required. No no medical professional is required to participate. Um, but there are some that are specific to abortion and, and to some other things. But this would have just made it much, much wider. Mm-hmm. So. And, and part of the reason why you mentioned that um, this was a violation of the Administrative Procedures Act, um, one of the reasons why the judge in New York said that it was arbitrary and capricious is because he said that basically the administration inflated the number mm-hmm. of cases justifying the rule, that it was flatly untrue, and that was wrong. That's right, because they'd they'd originally said that they'd gotten way more complaints, and apparently that was not the case. Right, right. I think they said it was down to like 20 or something like that after they subtracted all the others. Um, And he also said that there were concerns that it was coercive because providers could have lost a lot of federal funding. So that was pretty interesting. It kind of Reminded me a little bit of the reasoning in the 2012 uh, Supreme Court case over the healthcare law that, you know, it's co- coercive if you actually are going to, if all these dollars are, money. Yeah. Right, yeah. are at stake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that, that case could turn out to be important for a lot of these things. So I imagine we will we will see this this case uh, go further. Um, also, finally this week, a federal district court judge in Portland has also blocked President Trump's order that would require new immigrants to the U.S. to prove that they either have health insurance within 30 days or can pay for their own medical care if they get sick. Do we have any idea where this actually came from? This was not a, a, a tech, you know, regulation. This was basically a presidential proclamation that got issued on a Friday night. Right. And when my colleagues were asking HHS officials about it, they really distanced themselves from it and said, this is uh, an immigration thing, not a health thing. Um, but it's obviously both. And we don't have the court's reasoning for blocking it. This is just a temporary block so they can consider consider it more without it having without it going into effect. And so I think we'll hear a lot more about this. But, um, yeah, requiring uh, immigrants and not all immigrants, um, some are exempted, um, but requiring some immigrants to prove they uh, have health insurance or can afford to get it. But Medicaid doesn't count. And these are these are all legal migrants. Um, 
and and refugees are exempt. Um, but so it, it doesn't count if you cite Medicaid and it doesn't count if you cite uh, an ACA plan with a subsidy. Sort of an individual mandate for immigrants, except for the ways that you can't do it all of the <laughs> things. Yeah. Right. It's an individual mandate for for immigrants, but you have to pay for everything yourself. Well, we'll see. I'm sure we'll hear more about this, too. All right. Well, that is the news for the week. Now we will play my interview with Dan Weissman about the new season of An Arm and a Leg, and then we will come back and do our extra credit. So here's the interview. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast Dan Weissman. Dan's the host and producer of An Arm and a Leg, a podcast about the high cost of health care and what you can do about it. Its third season launches today with KHN as a co-producer. Welcome back, Dan. Julie, thanks so much for having me. So you have spent your first two seasons telling us a lot of sad stories about people who are really getting <laughs> screwed by the health care system. Uh, what's your focus for this third season? Yeah, I mean, I, I want to say they're not all sad, honestly. I mean, there's sadness in what we do, but um, the show always aims to be more entertaining and empowering and occasionally useful than enraging and terrifying and depressing. So I hope I hope it's not too sad. Um, this season, we are all about self-defense. We're, uh, we're leaning away from the news cycle a bit. Uh, presidential candidates, of course, are talking about big plans to change the healthcare system. And you're probably the best person to ask about a lot of them. Um, we're saying none of that's likely to actually happen in everyday life for most of us. I that's mean, so true. The elections a while away and legislation takes a while to happen and then things take a long time to get implemented. If anybody's individual electoral and legislative dreams come true, uh, it's years before anything really happens, which is, as I would say, like a lot of GoFundMe campaigns from now. So we're looking at self-defense like in the here and now, what you can do right now, what kind of bills you can fight, stories about people who are having successes on levels kind of big and small. So our first story concerns a mom who took on the state of Texas and fought a big legislative battle with really just a few other moms, a few other allies. That's right. And I was going to ask you uh, about that first episode. So the, the woman's name is Stephanie Wax, and she had a lot of bad stuff thrown at her, including a daughter born with a hearing loss and a brother who died of a drug overdose. But she decided to channel her grief and frustration into action. Yes? Absolutely. Yeah. After her brother died, and while she was still kind of getting her legs under her, she came across kind of a change.org petition from someone who'd said something that she had noticed, which is, it's kind of messed up that insurance doesn't have to cover hearing aids for kids. Um, and that's regulated state by state. She lives in Texas. That was true there. And this petition was like, somebody should change that. And she was like, yeah, yeah, count me in. Let's let's ride. So we have a couple of clips from the episode. Um, set up this first one about why she decided to do what she did. In other words, getting involved in this effort to change the law in Texas. Yeah, you have really set it up. She needed some place to put all this overwhelming emotional energy that was kind of coming at her really, really hard. In her family's case, financial need wasn't an issue because the center where her daughter was being seen wrangled a grant that covered the cost of her hearing aids and the first 18 months of her speech therapy. I just needed a place to put a lot of my inability to bring my brother back, my inability to change the fact that my daughter couldn't hear. Like All of these things happened at once that I couldn't fix. So Stephanie got quite the education about what it really takes to pass a bill through a legislature. Um, talk us into this second clip about the, the person who ended up sponsoring the bill. She really did. Yeah, she found out pretty quick. And she may have known ahead of time, Texas is a red state. And she's, you know, a liberal lady from Houston. 
And, you know, her local representative is not going to have a whole lot of clout in the state house. So she needed somebody really, really different from her to carry this bill through. We had, like, sponsors of the bill who were Democrats. The bill wouldn't have made it. It just wouldn't have, you know. So you end up, like, getting into bed with people who are like, they're the worst, you know. And, like, but they're actually not the worst. She ended up with Lois Kolkhorst sponsoring the bill in the Senate. And Lois Kolkhorst uh, is perhaps best known as the champion of Texas's bathroom bill, um, kind of echoes of North Carolina. So very deep red Republican. But she has a niece born deaf who has children who are born deaf. And she was very, very interested in this particular measure. And yet still, Stephanie saw, you know, what a slog it is to actually get a bill all the way through the process, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the first time they went through it, they found they had come in a little late to the process. And so their first couple of months ended up in a dead end because the session ended. And Texas apparently has one session every two years. So they really loaded up. And and the second session, they went at it full on. And it was a slog. And, you know, you're constantly just like bugging everyone, you know, like, please call, please text, please call, please email. You know, you're just like become this broken record. And everyone's on the Internet asking for the shit that they want. And yeah, (laughs) getting a bill through a legislature, even even local, state or God forbid, national is not an easy thing. So uh, as as you pointed out earlier, anything that's going to happen at the national level is going to take a while. Um, What else can we look forward to this season about what things people can do now? A lot of the other stories are in some ways much more intimate. I mean, Stephanie's story is really about her and her family, but she took on this big scale thing. The second episode is about my neighbor, the healthcare ninja. She heard an episode we did last fall in which we featured somebody who helps other people kind of negotiating healthcare bills. And at the end of that episode, I was like, if you know somebody like this or you are somebody like this, get in touch. And she did. And her story is tough. She's a type one diabetic diagnosed at age 12. You know, she's learned what she's learned through a lot of real struggle. And she's a remarkable person. Uh, We'll also have a musical episode. If this podcast were a musical, it would be Explanation of Benefits, which is a show that actually played in New York earlier this year. We've got some excerpts from it. It's going to be pretty fun. And then it's been kind of a fantasy of mine for this show to have a kind of our answer to shows like Car Talk or Savage Love. So ours is called uh, Can They Fucking Do That? And we are tapping the Kaiser Health News Brain Trust. And I am super psyched that you are going to help us unravel one of these questions. Well, I I am looking forward to that. Uh, In the meantime, you've got something that your listeners can do right now, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. We are nominated for an award, actually two, by a site called Discover Pods. And they have awards for podcasts, kind of a people's choice thing. And we're nominated as Best New Show, which I'm super honored by and I think is awesome. But I am really, uh, I don't quite know what to say about it, except that it's amazing. Some genius nominated us as the best true crime show of the year. And we're a finalist because not all crimes are against the law. And I am leaning into this. Everything on our show, you know, we have no cops, we have no prosecutors. Everything that happens is technically legal. But the scale of the crime is really big. I want to win this. So we'll have links in the show notes. I, we talk about it on the show. You can look us up at armandalegshow.com. Everybody should go vote and tell everybody that you know to vote for us as the best true crime show of the year. Well, way way to boost health policy reporting. Um, (laughs) If you want to hear the new season of An Arm and a Leg, you can find it wherever you get your podcast, as well as on the podcast page at khn.org. Dan Weissman, thank you so much for joining us. Julie, thank you so much for having me. 
Okay, we are back, and it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read, too. Don't worry. If you miss it, we will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash whatthehealth. Alice, why don't you go first this week? Sure. I want to shout out a great story from my colleagues, Dan Diamond and Adam Kinkren. Um, it is a follow-up on their previous uh, hard-hitting reporting on um, CMS Administrator Seema Verma and her use of private outside contractors um, to do work basically promoting her own image. Um, it's it's normal for agencies, including HHS, to use outside contractors for communications things, but it's usually to promote policies, not people. So um, so they broke that story months ago, but then this follow-up shows that the people who got these contracts, which were more than two millions worth of contracts, were um, veterans of the Trump campaign, ex-White House people, um, Republican operatives. These are these are not like... Somebody she couldn't get hired. neutral <laughs> <laughs> communications groups. Um, so the money was flowing to these to these people um, who were doing speech writing for her. And uh, and it was a lot of, I mean, they were getting paid like hundreds of dollars an hour. Yes, 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 yes. And some of them, you know, just did a few weeks of work and walked away with a ton of money. And um, and so I, I think there, there might be some more follow-up on this from Congress. But, um, yeah, pretty interesting. Yeah, it was pretty eye-opening. Rebecca. Mm-hmm. So I uh, looked at Mary Ellen McIntyre's story, Surprise Billing Fight Highlights Hurdles for Bolder Healthcare Changes. So remember surprise billing and how we were going to get that done this year? What happened to that? What happened to that? It seemed like such an easy thing for Congress to do. Nobody on either side of the aisle disagrees with the idea. And the president wants to do it. That's right. That's right. But how much you pay doctors and and other providers, that's always an issue. Even if it's a small number of providers that are going to potentially get their payments cut, that it's hard to get that through. And so she looked at that. She reminded people that that was something Congress had on its plate at one point and um, kind of talked about the larger lesson of how hard it would be to get something like Medicare for all or even a public option that people could buy into government run health care, how hard it would be to get that through. Indeed. All right. Well, mine is very appropriate for this week since we are in open season for the Affordable Care Act. It's from the Philadelphia Inquirer. It's called A Philly Woman's Broken Back and $36,000 Bill Shows How Some Health Insurance Brokers Trick Consumers into Skimpy Plans by Sarah Gann. And the headline kind of tells a lot of the story. The patient here had uh, uh, had comprehensive health insurance. She did what we all advise, which is to go on healthcare.gov during open season to see if she could get a better plan for a little bit less money. Uh, except she inadvertently got sucked into a healthcare.gov lookalike site and then got hooked up with a not-too-honest broker who sold her what's called a fixed indemnity plan. Now, these are not actually insurance at all, but they're plans that are intended to supplement what your actual insurance pays. So she ends up with this fixed indemnity insurance paying $2,000 toward her $36,000 hospital bill. A couple of takeaways here. One of them is if you're on healthcare.gov, make sure you're on the actual site. If you scroll down to the bottom, it says that it's a federal government website. You should kind of look for that. And if you have a state exchange, if your state doesn't use healthcare.gov, make sure that you're on that actual site too. Also, fixed indemnity insurance isn't really insurance. Make sure what you're buying is, if that's what you want. Okay, end of lecture. 
Uh, that is our show for the week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us, too. Also, as usual, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Alice Olstein. At Rebecca Adams, DC. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.